Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Catherine Baumgartner and Michael Lerner. Catherine Baumgartner, welcome to the New School. Thank you very much. Catherine, you describe yourself as an artist, an interdisciplinary inquirist, and initiator of collaborative projects that explore the ways in which individuals and communities relate to living environments and translate these sensory experiences into cultural forms in order to create worlds of meaning. That's a mouthful. (laughs) That's a mouthful. So you have an organization that you've started called Embodied Ecologies. Maybe you could tell us sort of Pull that mouthful apart for us and and tell us what is Embodied Ecologies really about? Sure. Um, I think the big aha that it's all sort of sourced in is the idea that I discovered years ago when I was working as or performing as a dancer with a site-specific dance company. And um, working with a choreographer that did outdoor performances, and so she would send us out and say, go listen to the landscape, just let it sort of open, you know, open up all your senses and let it just kind of absorb it and then let it find its way into improvisational movement. And as she would sort of guide us through this process, there were certain movements that were, you know, you try to like dance like the river or dance the lines of the building or whatever it was. And then there were some that really didn't have anything objectively to do with the site, but that just sort of came out of you unexpectedly. And, and it opened me up to this idea that if you tune into the living dynamic place that you're inhabiting, that there's a whole rhythm of aliveness that's present in that place. And that it's your body and your body's ability to be an antenna, to tune into and sort of join in the dance with that, that dance that's happening around us all the time. Um, <clears throat> that then becomes the channel through which all of these um, sensory impressions can then come back out again as thought or as language or as art or as any expressive form that it takes depending on the sort of layer of um, expression. And that reconfigured my understanding of perception to locate the, the body, to sort of highlight the body as the main site where all of this is happening. Like, I used to think that all, you know, everything was out there. I tried to understand the world out there. I tried to attune to things out there as I was developing a spiritual practice. But it brought it all back here, that our sensory neurons are the translators of all of this experience and that it's this pathway both taking the world in and then expressing it back out that this is like the main headquarters kind of thing so that's where this idea of embodied ecologies came from it's the focus on the body um, and really looking at that as the the link between everything that we think of as sort of the meta aspects of our culture and experience but then also the the foundational aspects of our, just our lives and the places that we live and the literal biology that we're, um, you know, in taking in in order to stay, like, that sustains us. 
sort of thing. So the, the goal, the hope of this organization is to be a place where this can be explored in an interdisciplinary way. Um, and hopefully, um, yeah, and that's kind of where I'm at right now. <laughs> like it's still an so let, let amazing thing. See if I can kind of take in what you just said. Okay. So we all exist in landscapes, right? Mm -hmm. We all are, are situated in a place, right? And through this experience of place-based dance, you came to understand that if you sensed your way into that landscape, that there was a way in which your body could be an antenna which took in the landscape so that it was located within you. It was an embodied ecology. Mm -hmm. And that this embodied ecology could then express itself in different ways as language, as culture, as movement, as art. Mm -hmm. So there's the sense of an embodied ecology. We are in the landscape. We tune into the landscape. It enters us. And then we can express it. Is mm -hmm. that the core idea? That is, yeah. And then everything that follows from there. Everything about, that follows it. Yeah. So then where you take that is in the direction of neuroscience, among other things. Is that correct? I don't know if it's that I'm taking it in that direction. It was more that neuroscience helped me really understand on a physiological level how what was happening right. in that kind of experience. So. But there's a place where you say that neuroscience could be to this field what mathematics is to the physical sciences. Mm -hmm. That neuroscience is the language of our neurosensory mm -hmm. mechanism mm -hmm. that could integrate the whole set of fields yep. that you see coming together in mm -hmm. embodied ecology. Mm -hmm. That in the same way, yeah, that mathematics sort of links all of these, you know, chemistry and physics and astrophysics and particle physics and everything from the macro to micro. That neuroscience as sort of the scientific language of the body and its perception and expression could be a language that links, you know, uh, anthropology, phenomenology, um, sociology, cultural, you know, social geography, like all of these different disciplines that are trying to understand human relationships to place in the way that we derive meaning from place. If you, you know, the closer that you sort of get down on a cellular level in terms of neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience and cognitive science, they've just, they've, so much has been figured out in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years because of the technology that's been developed, like the fMRIs and just the imaging technology, that, that we now understand more how all these different neural pathways connect up and then eventually find their way up into, um, you know, emotion and then cognition and then to imagination and then into more sort of formal structural things that we then employ collectively, um, that the idea is that neuroscience could be this language that then links this whole array of, of disciplines together in, in one big broader question of what is, it, what is it to be a human in relationship to place and to attempt to derive some sense of understanding and meaning from our inhabitation of a living landscape as, as, as dynamic, alive beings ourselves kind of thing. 
when you speak of neuroscience, the are you speaking of neurology as the core dimension of neuroscience? I mean, I think there's neurology, there's endocrinology, there's all these different ologies in the body, and they're all attempts to tease apart an integrated whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, are you using neuroscience in a broad sense to refer to all the ologies of the body, or are you using it in the narrower sense and making the claim that it is the neurological system that has primacy over all the other systems? Mm, definitely not that it has primacy, because okay. they do work as a big concert okay, yeah. thing happening. Um, more that I think neuroscience as a discipline investigates perhaps most directly the sort of end-to-end pathway between perception, like how the incoming sensory stimuli then set off this chain reaction that ultimately then prompts an expressive response. So to me, it was one way of looking at the whole complete picture. But then it's, it's a really good point that, of course, then that links up with psychology and with how that affects us in an endocrine way and, you know... Immunology, and all the everything. allergies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. So... You pick it because it is the entry point for the sensory material, and it's the exit point for the expressive material, but it is part of the orchestra of all the ologies uh, that go along with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's interesting to reflect. I mean, it's such a beautiful trope to speak of uh, neuroscience as the equivalent for this cluster of sciences. Uh, that mathematics is for the physical sciences. But it seems to me that, and I don't know enough to know this, but my intuition is that they're quite different because mathematics has a clarity to it, no matter how complicated it gets. And neuroscience is dealing with the whole unbelievable complexity and messiness of being embodied, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's an interesting claim to make that parallelism, mm-hmm. you know? I think what it could offer, and, it, and it's like, it's not that also you could find one pathway and say that right. this is the pathway that all six billion of us, you right. know, embody in terms of sensing yeah. this thing right. and expressing this thing, but I think what it hopefully potentially offers is mm-hmm. a really interesting way of comparing Mm-hmm. Like, David Hose is a um, sensory anthropologist. He's based up in Canada, and he was the first person in whose writing I encountered the idea of the sensorium. And this idea that, you know, in a given culture, even a given individual has a very specific way of inhabiting and experiencing the world based on their formative experiences and how those formative experiences shape their neural infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So you can have people from two different cultures who can, you know, put them in the same location and they're experiencing completely different things because their sensoria, like the world that they carry around them, are vastly different based on how their neurons, what, what perceptual, um, what aspects of their perception are actually conscious 
Um, <clears throat> and so I think if you, it would be really interesting then to say, okay, person A from this culture who has this, like, it lights up their entire system when this particular stimulus happens versus person B from this culture who, you know, it doesn't even reach their cortex, so it's not even a conscious thing. And then you can compare those two pathways and say, what is it about their you know, their neural infrastructure as a result of their culture or their experience or whatever formative um, activities or, you know, training or education or, like, that they had that caused this person to have a much deeper perception of this phenomenon than this yeah. person can. So the so. Ur experiment for this that you refer to as the kitten experiment. Right, right. Describe that for us, so this was back in the 50s, and there was a, this is kind of in the field of embodied and situated cognition. Um, and there's all, like you were saying, there's all these different sort of subdomains within neuroscience and its many different branches. And they did an experiment where there were two groups of newborn kittens, and one of which, um, who are blind when they're born. And so one, they just let run around freely in a space and they, you know, got to explore and turn corners and climb up on things and jump down. And the other group of which was carried around in a basket. And so when their eyes opened, they saw everything and you know had stimuli that were activating their depth perception and patterns and corners and shapes. But when they put the two, and so as the this group only stayed in the basket and wasn't allowed to roam around. So when they put them both in the same area, the ones that had had the opportunity to develop their sensory, both their visual skills and their motor skills, could navigate the space completely fine. And the other ones that had been in the basket, where they could see everything, but they were stumbling around and they didn't know how to walk and they didn't know how to navigate through spaces because their visual neurons, and this is a theory, their visual neurons and their sensory motor neurons never got to integrate together. So that's, that's what yeah. you call situated cognition. cognition. Yeah. The neurobiological architecture develops as a response to interaction with the environment. Mm -hmm. So the next key concept for you in this is neuroplasticity. Tell us how neuroplasticity fits in. Sure. Well, um, broadly they divide, they, in, within neuroscience, they divide neuroplasticity into two main types. There's experience dependent, which is like the kittens. You have to, um, we're born with a certain amount of in, sort of innate neural infrastructure, like for your, all your different systems or your different sensory and perception things. And in order for those to be fully developed, you have to have, you know, in order for your eyes and your visual system to develop, you have to have light and color and shades and patterns and depth and everything. So that's experience dependent. And then there's experience, right, actually... Experience expectant, expectant. Right. is the ones that we have innately, and so we're born, and it's like um, evolutionarily we've like accumulated various perceptual capacities that um, which have to be triggered by exposure. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm. I guess I'm not. <laughs> Sorry, I'm kind of. Yeah. But the basic idea is that some we have like your. Um, some we have that are already there and they're anticipating what we're going to encounter in the world and then some we never develop because we never actually have those challenges presented to us that cause us to develop or I need see. to develop those faculties. So that would be experience. So some better. will happen automatically and others require... Uh, uh, yeah. and so they, those are the two dimensions of neuroplasticity. Yeah. Uh -huh. So... Um, you have a really nice chart about uh, 
the windows of plasticity and brain development. And there, you talk about three basic windows that kind of overlap. Could you talk to us about those? Sure. Well, broadly, they um, within early childhood development and neural development, they talk about how you know, your first seven years of life are where your brain, all your neurosynapses form, and then if you don't learn whatever language by the time you're eight, then it's you're out of luck because you'll never be able to. And um, what they're saying is that that's no longer true, as I'm sure everyone's heard. There's like now the newest thing is that neuroplasticity is something that can happen across the lifespan. But still, within sort of the first seven, eight years, there are, there are windows of... Um, of denser neural development, um, and they they relate to um, just the primary sort of system type things as within infancy. You know, making sure that all of your different internal biological systems are talking to each other, and then as a younger child, there's like the emotional things in your relational um, neural infrastructure as far as how you um, pick up on and relate to signals from other people and then use those to regulate your own internal system. And then also the sensory motor piece. So the more like the more activity you get, the more you have an opportunity to have all of your um, motor neurons and muscles and bones and everything integrate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, isn't there the final stage of the, uh, uh, the, the sort of mental development or is that, or is that part of what you just described? Well, that is, um, I think there's different stages of that that then continue to happen sort of in our teens and 20s. Like okay. we go through various sort of quantum leaps, I think, right. in terms of, of cognitive development. Like they, I heard once something really interesting that young people up to the age of seven, they don't really even understand what the concept of life is, which is why like four-year-old kids pull the legs off of spiders because like, we really don't understand the concept of life and death until about age seven. Mm -hmm. And they say that your, you know, teens do all kinds of wacky things because their executive functions and their prefrontal cortex don't really come online until you're 20 or 25 or later, depending on your environment. So, uh. Which is why they like soldiers to be young, right? Indeed, yeah. yeah. Very trainable. So you take these ideas about um, uh, neuroscience and you then develop a sense of how place becomes culture, a hypothesis about that. Um, that perception is founded on sensation, things happening out there are really being sensed in here, that all experience is situated, and therefore that this is a way of understanding how this individual process that we were talking about, about embodied ecologies, for a community becomes a culture. Mm -hmm. That the culture is, in a sense, place-based in that very deep sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I've been reading an extraordinary book by Robert Kaplan called The, Ge the, Reven the Revenge of Geography. Kaplan is a political theorist, and basically he says that American foreign policy has completely ignored how geography shapes the political culture of different countries. And that in the 19th century, this was well known by political geographers. So that, for example, uh, you take a place like Iraq, 
uh, or a place like Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, these places have never had democratic processes, and it has a huge amount to do with the geography of the place. Mm -hmm. you know? And he makes a very strong case uh, for the political consequences of what you're describing, mm -hmm. namely that, uh, that over time, the, the occupants of these spaces embody uh, the spaces, create a culture, and that the culture has consequences for political culture, for obviously other aspects of culture, but it, it, it reminds me strongly of what you're describing here. Yeah. So um, where, do you, where do you sort of take it from there? You've, you've shown us how neuroscience brings the uh, place into us and we experience it and we express it. You've suggested that that also uh, indicates how a place becomes a culture based on neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Where do you take it from there? Where, where, where do you go from there? Well, there's, for me at least, in kind of grappling with these ideas, there's different implications as far as um, our current behavior towards living landscapes. Um, in some ways, it sort of divides up into, on the one hand, there's an urgency, um, and on the other hand, there's an opportunity. So urgency is, um, and within this, there's also sort of different streams. Urgency is like, for example, with place-based cultures that have place-specific languages, as their ecologies are changing and as you know, development comes in and changes their landscape or globalization happens and they have more access to outside cultures and their own culture starts to sort of change and dissipate. Um, as those relationships alter, that actually, I, th I think that one of the sort of what follows from some of these ideas is that there's a literal body impact when you change either parts of that equation. So you take people out of a landscape or you change their landscape or you take away their language, you're literally almost like amputating an aspect of their bigger nervous system or the, the part of their universe that helps their culture and their community stay regulated. Um, and I think that there's a really important conversation to be had there around, you know, what is the physiological impact because mostly it's, you know, it's done in terms of, oh, well, we're, we're taking away their livelihood. Or, you know, it's explored in economic terms, but I think shifting that to something like literally looking at the, the health impact or the physiological and psychological impact mm -hmm. could create a new kind of conversation that could happen around those things. Um, and the other thing is, you know, a lot of the research like Richard Louvre and the Children in Nature Network and the, the impact on the development of young people in these crucial ages of not having as much access or interaction with, with natural areas. And, you know, is that somehow related to the increase in autism and, and ADHD and different um, conditions or disorders that seem to have something to do with a lack of sensory integration? Um, and there's, you know, the Children and Nature Network have done all this research showing that when you, like, kids that have autism or ADHD just spend a significant period of time in natural spaces that their symptoms decrease. And so, 
you know, there's an urgency there to maybe look more at what are what could be the benefits of of more outdoor type modalities as um, these as the just the percentage of kids with these conditions is increasing. But then also, you know, the benefit of kids having more time outdoors. Um, you know, will that increase? you know, does that set them up to have better health outcomes in the long run? And, you know, for adults, too. Like, I think people talk about, like, I know a lot of people come to West Marin because they're dealing with health problems, and they come here where there's less, you know, there's less, like, fragmentation in terms of the things that are demanding your attention, and there's more integration in the landscape. And I've heard, like, amazing stories of people who have come out here and, you know, been dealing with chronic conditions that have, like, either lessened or gone away, mm-hmm. kind of thing. So. Yeah, it's a bit of a refuge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, you and I share a friendship with a remarkable man named Ken Wilson from the Christensen Fund. And we just did a conversation with Ken that just went up on the website. The Christensen Fund is a Bay Area foundation that... Um, works really quite directly with the issues that you're talking about, Catherine. Um, uh, Ken has chosen to focus on, I think, six or seven landscapes around the world Mm -hmm. where there is a very strong concentration of both ecological biodiversity and cultural diversity. And when you draw a map, if you, when you, if you look at the world, it turns out, not obvious, but so fascinating, that the places with the greatest concentrations of biodiversity also have the greatest cultural diversity. And so you have these incredible hotspots of both biodiversity and cultural diversity, where in amazingly compact areas, you may have a dozen different languages, a dozen different cultures, and of course, under the impact of, of industrialization and globalization, uh, languages and cultures are dying at least as fast as biological species. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so we had an incredible conversation with Ken about that form of philanthropy, which is really remarkable. Uh, and what he does is to go into these landscapes and he tries to identify the guardians of the cultures yeah. and to find ways of supporting the resilience of the guardians of the cultures because they know that the world is going to change. And so the question is, how do you build resilience mm-hmm. for these guardians of the cultures who turn out also to often be the guardians of biodiversity as well? So that deeply connects to what you're talking about. Very much, yeah. And in fact, Ken was the person that suggested we talk. So another person who we had a wonderful conversation with was a street poet from New York named Bob Holman, who uh, is just finishing a PBS series with a friend of ours, David Grubin, on endangered languages. (laughs) And they traveled around the world looking at endangered languages uh, and again, uh, it, it really makes the same case that you make, that, that when a language disappears, when a culture, there's this enormous loss. It's like losing a species. Mm-hmm. And as you point out, the implications of that for um, sort of who we are at every level are just very profound. You know, so, so I think you're onto something really important. 
So you talk about um, cultural integration, coherent integration at multiple levels of embodied experience. You talk about ecological, sensory, emotional, psychological, cognitive, social, symbolic, and cultural. So I just want to bring out the the number of levels at which you're thinking. In other words, you're thinking at every level from the individual biological level really up to the cosmological level, Mm -hmm. in a sense. And you seem to be proposing, which is just an ambitious claim, a very interesting one, that embodied ecologies is a, a language in which we can bring together the different disciplines that cluster around this set of issues in neuroscience. Yes. Yeah. Well, and the blueprint for that comes from an experience that I had that I sort of tried to extrapolate from, Mm -hmm. um, and that was when I was living out here in Stinson Beach. Mm -hmm. Um, I spent a lot of time hiking on Mount Tam, Mm -hmm. as I'm sure many people have, and Mm -hmm. um, this was before, this was after I had danced with Mary Lee Hardenberg, the site-specific choreographer, and sort of had this kind of intuitive... Um, intuitive but not conscious understanding of like there's something really important happening here in terms of how it's possible to connect to landscapes and what that then creates like as that relationship deepens what that allows to unfold in terms of a person's experience and so I just went up all I knew was that okay there's this way of listening so I'm just going to do that as much as possible so I spent hours and hours hiking and um, and had the you know opportunity to live in Stinson over a year, so I got to see Mount Tam and all its seasons and in all its moods and all my seasons and all my moods and um, sort of taken this rich feast of sensory impressions. And then I moved to Oakland to start attending graduate school at um, at John F. Kennedy University in their transformative arts program. And sort of out of really having never really been a poet before, started writing poetry. You're listening to a conversation with Catherine Baumgartner and Michael Lerner. And, um, and it was this weird, almost compulsive thing where these poems would just sort of like knock on my head and say, write me down. And I was like, okay. And so I started writing and, and it was through the sort of gradual accumulation of these poems as they formed into a body of work that I was starting to see symbols that would occur in different poems and it was like star and garden and hand and moon and you know sort of very archetypally charged things already but that didn't have a particular meaning for me until I started seeing the correspondences between the different poems and gleaning kind of a sense of like oh the moon represents this for me and this, the hands represent this, like hands came to mean my, like the point of contact between me and the sacred. And that, they took on that meaning because of the way they kept showing up in these poems. Mm-hmm. And then there was one poem where this bird, this, the white bird came in and literally as I'm writing, it was like this bird in the poem was talking to me and telling me things. And I had this, you know, and that happened only a couple times as I was writing, but I'm sure other people in this room have had an experience of being, you know, a painter. Then, like, your, your pieces are talking to you and telling you information. And, and so then I um, 
they created this kind of symbolic constellation that then when I went back out hiking on Mount Tam, I was carrying with me. And so I had this kind of symbolic universe that then was co-taking up the same simultaneous space with the physical landscape uh-huh. of the place. And I went, oh, this is, maybe this is how people, cultures over time, you know, if a culture has inhabited a place for generations or centuries or longer, you know, maybe this is how their cosmologies develop is that it's literally they're just channeling the place out into these created forms that and then the like and that was one sort of big aha was that these it's the art or the language that reveals to the expressing embodying sensing human the form the conscious form of their dynamic experience of the place and allows them to make sense of it because the forms like they're sorry I'm getting really excited because it's this you know we're always riding that edge between we have to have some sort of solid understanding of who we are and where we are in a in a in a referential way in order to locate ourselves because otherwise it's just big swirling change and we really have no way of making sense of it. Mm -hmm. So I think that what this process does or what the purpose of art is or the purpose of culture is, is to be, especially when it perhaps is generated in this way, is it's that joint, like that nexus between it's dynamic, it's alive, it's ever-changing and it's, it's solid, it's stable, it's a fixed set of relationships that allows you then to find yourself both in something that has solidity and a legacy and can be part of your identity in a solid way, but that also allows you to be in relationship to the aliveness and the dynamism and the sort of like ephemeral nature of the universe. So. Um, Oh, so in terms of how this, you know, then weaves everything together is this idea of if, 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 if indeed that is how cultures can be generated or in some cases are generated, then that it makes sense that that allows everything to fit together because it's all come through the same embodied experience and literally all is all knitted together in the same neural network. Mm-hmm. So. You have one other piece, at least one other, that we ought to talk about just as a conceptual piece, like uh, uh, which is the hemispheric differentiation of the brain. Sure. Which is pretty familiar to people, I think. But So there's the left hemisphere and the right. The left hemisphere, you write, is slower, does analysis, focused, conscious, explicit memory. The right is faster, does appraisal, diffuse, field-oriented, unconscious, and implicit memory. Mm-hmm. Those are pretty well-established qualities of the left and right hemisphere. Yeah, okay. those, those sort of characterizations basically come out of, largely out of the work of Ian McGilchrist, who you okay. may know, mm-hmm. who is, um, he's based in the UK and over 15 to 20 years, I think, did a sort of comprehensive survey of all the brain hemisphere mm-hmm. research that was out there and said, you know, based on all of the, the studies that have been done, there is a very significant difference in terms of how the two hemispheres process information, but also, which means they actually perceive the world in very different ways. And so, depending on 
which one is favored in a given culture or in a given person. Um, you can have the same experience processed through the right hemisphere, which may or may not be the dominant like one versus the left hemisphere. They're going to have two different reads, basically, on what's happening to you and in the world. You have a quote, it's as if we live simultaneously in two different worlds, but we don't realize how radically different they are, mm -hmm. nor do we sense that they are competing. So you talk about coherent cosmologies that integrate left and right hemisphere perception so that cognition is congruent with actual embodied sensory perception. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that for us? Sure. Well, and this is partly what comes out of somatic psychology, is that they're realizing <clears throat> the degree to which somatic experience um, is processed on an unconscious level, like in terms of, you know, our brain screens out what's non-essential in terms of whatever the task is, is hand and so like our bodies are adapting to temperature fluctuations or to light or to whatever's going on in your environment like we're constantly adapting to it but it doesn't have to be a consciously willfully directed thing um and so what they've studies have shown is that the the right hemisphere is more directly connected to the different sort of internal sensing things that are going on in the body and they call that interoception um and the right is also kind of panning constantly to see what's going on in the atmosphere. And so you have um, like this constant monitoring thing going on, um, mostly on the right hemisphere. And then on the left hemisphere, it's more um, directed, goal-oriented. It's about taking information or tools or objects or environments and manipulating them in order to achieve specific outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if you are coming more from this worldview, mm -hmm. then your experience and your values and your activity is going to be more sort of goal-directed and not necessarily taking in the information that your body is processing anyway about a more holistic picture and a more integrative picture about your, what's going on not only in your own body, but mm -hmm. what's going on in, in the world around you. You know, you and I had a really interesting conversation because you've been through a very traumatic three months. Both your mother and your father died in the last three months. And um, your father was 81, ailing. Uh, your mother was early 70s, doing well, but had had a stroke and was on Coumadin and fell and ended up with a bleed. That, And then after her death, your father, who was an uh, endocrinologist, actually, um, just died very soon. Um, and, and you and I were talking about co-regulation and how, say a little bit about co-regulation in in, between people who are close. Sure. Well, it's this idea that um, just by, because our nervous systems tend to be very sort of open and, and interaction-oriented, that when two people, whether, you know, two mammals, two beings, like whether it's a mother and infant or people in a partnership are really close, their nervous systems essentially sort of intertwine and become one big common nervous system. And so when, 
if we get along well with somebody and they understand us on a sort of gut level and they know how we operate and when we get triggered, they're able to sort of help us bring, bring us back into a more functional window kind of thing. They talk about how that's co-regulation. So um, like within somatic psychology, they have what they call the window of tolerance. And this is the level of activation within, within which people can continue, you can process both sensory somatic feeling information, but also cognitive thought information. So you can think and feel at the same time. Below this hypoactivation, you're just sort of lethargic or you're you know, just kind of spacey, or above this, you're manic or hyperactivated. And so co-regulation is... Um, the interactivity and interdependence of two people's nervous systems to sort of help both people, you know, stay in that general window. And um, what, there's research actually on this that when one partner dies and the other partner was heavily reliant, or, you know, either by necessity or just out of, like, that's the way the relationship was, that it's not uncommon for the other person losing that factor that helped them stay regulated just kind of goes into free fall. And clearly it wouldn't just be within a couple. I mean, it could be within a whole family. It could be in a yeah. community. Yeah. You know, one thinks of that experiment that Facebook did recently where they manipulated people's emotions just to see what would happen. I don't know if you I saw that. Oh, there was a famous article about that came out in a psychological journal and then came out and actually the head of Facebook had to um, apologize no. because they were literally experimenting with what happened if they provided what was it lots of positive feedback or negative feedback I forget which but uh, you know huh. it became clear that they were manipulating you know tens of thousands of people in the service of discovering you know how they could manipulate. Um, so those those are forms of co-regulation. Yeah. Well, and we were. I was talking with my friend about the World Cup game yesterday right. and what might have happened to the Brazilian soccer team. Like they were very dysregulated for whatever reason mm -hmm. and couldn't. So what you then say is, having taken this concept of co-regulation, then you say. What about situated homeostatic co-regulation? Do deeply integrated ecological environments like old growth forests facilitate homeostatic regulation of the human nervous system? If yes, what are the implications for biocultural diversity, conservation, and human health? Mm -hmm. It's a very creative road you're taking there. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're taking this co-regulation point, and then you're saying, well, if it's between two people, what about between people and landscapes? Mm -hmm. yeah, very beautiful. I mean, very creative thinking. I haven't seen all of this brought together in this way. And I think, um, you know, because really, I mean, you, you, um, you brought all this together. Nobody, nobody has done quite this before, I think. And I think... Uh, well, there have been lots of pieces. Yeah, and I, you know, I have I think to. It's a, it's a creative act to bring these pieces together. Thank you. Know? It really is. Um, so I want to open it up now. Um, and I'm actually going to ask my friend Oren Slosberg, who thinks about these questions, whether anything's been running through his mind. Um, there's a lot running through my mind when it's trying to get all the jargon down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was—I couldn't help but think about you talking about how individuals integrate into their 
integrate the neurological system to their environment and take a country like the United States where most of the people here are not actually native to this country, mm -hmm. right? So what effect does that have on the neurological development, both the people either in the country environment, I mean, people move in an average every seven years, most people live in an urban environment. So how would, I mean, how does that map on to one's neurological development? Mm -hmm. I think, I think that falls sort of on the opportunity side for the most part, you know, like, because everyone, we're all functionally neurologically developed, like we can talk, we can drive cars, we can, you know, but I think the opportunity perhaps that we might be missing out on is the ability to really, you know, develop, sen you know, sensorially and perceptually to our fullest potential, um, because I think it's, you know, it's part of what I discovered in going through the, the creative process of creating, co-creating art with Mount Tamil Pius is that there's, there, it's almost like concentric spheres, you know, I've, for most of my life I inhabited a world that was this big and then when I learned to do, like listen to landscapes through dance, then my world got this big and then when I was had the experience of hiking and then writing poetry, it got this big, you know, and so then part of what this model is, is, is the idea of like how big could our worlds get and not just big, but how rich could they become in terms of the, the integration and the, the depth of perception of all of the interrelationships and the patterns within the dynamism and not only the perception, but then also our ability to sort of enter into that dynamism in a dance way. Um, so I think it's, it's not necessarily, in some cases, I think there is a detriment factor to it. You know, if we live in cities and we don't have, you know, like if you live in concrete, it just feels super different, which is why it's just like such a relief to go into green spaces. But so, so I think health-wise, it probably is impacting us, but I think the, um, I think there's also, like, and I'm wondering if, you know, how the, 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 the negative impact, like, how does that compare in terms of the actual potential that's awaiting us if we had the opportunity to develop it to that degree? So. You know, I'll come back to the to questions in a second, but it's very interesting that we are having a bias in this conversation that natural environments are better for human beings than urban environments. And that's an interesting bias because cities go way back in human history. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's a lot to be said in favor of cities. Uh, I mean, obviously there are cities and cities and one can talk about cities that nourish and cities that don't, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, I think as you develop this thinking, it would be interesting to, to take a look at the implicit bias, at least in the materials that I have, toward old growth forests and nature and, you know, hot spots of cultural. I mean, New York City, where I'm from, mm -hmm. is, is an extraordinary place to live. You know, it's very rich. Even the, and so, um, so anyway, I just, what do you think about that? It's an interesting point um, because like with the, the experience-dependent neuroplasticity, there are certain aspects of our experience that won't, or of our perception 
perceptual and imaginal, I would even mm -hmm. say, experience that may never get activated without the right stimuli. Right. So living in New York City, you have this amazing diversity of stimuli Stim available mm -hmm. and very sophisticated stimuli right. that activate, you know, lots of different levels mm -hmm. of, of thought and perception. Um, so there's obviously a big benefit to that. I'm not against cities by any means. And I, I, I was a French major in college and spent some time in Paris, you know, and, and like have a deep appreciation for... Great cities. Yeah. Um, I wonder, though, about the, the, the integration piece. Like living in New York, do you, is it, does that sort of continually sort of... Um, are you always kind of having a boxing match with your environment in the sense of that it takes a certain amount of energy to just maintain in that level of intensity because your environment isn't necessarily supporting you on an I just integration think, you know, the, level? The whole counterculture in which we all live yeah. is a highly, historically, it's a highly romantic culture mm -hmm. which uh, privileges nature above of urbanity. Right. You know? And so just looking at this whole area... It seems to me interesting to look at our biases about this because I, what I would say is they're different. In New York City or a great city, certain things get triggered and developed, others don't. In nature, certain things get triggered and others don't. Mm -hmm. but, but having lived both in Bolinas and New York, I can't claim the decisive superiority of one <laughs> over the other. <laughs> Seems to me. Go ahead. Yes, I'd like to continue on this because I'm always having conversations with people in younger generations or those of us who consider ourselves more dinosaurs in this technological world where I'm walking out in nature on Mount Tam and I see people on their devices and I see parents with their little kids and instead of paying attention to interact with the kids, everyone's on all of their devices. I get worried, and I have created this idea yeah. in my head, and I'm wondering what you think, that certain neural pathways that are more just mental or cognitive and totally divorced from the somatic, natural, organic yeah. rhythms of humanness are not being developed and things are being overdeveloped up here and that our whole world is going to look more and more different, mm -hmm. you know, just mm -hmm. running out sort of a science fiction future world of people wearing aluminum suits. Right, and, and totally, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I, you know, I know, I know parents whose kids won't take walks with us in nature because they want to be at home playing their video games. They can't wait to get home. They consider it torture mm -hmm. to be taken out on trails. And <laughs> I'm thinking of how I grew up as a kid without even TV till we, I was about 11 and how we did all these creative play games with our bodies. Mm -hmm. So what, how does your ideas and theories and all blend in with this idea of how the younger world... In fact, the latest thing I just read in the Pacific Sun and I was shocked is that teenagers don't really have eye-to-eye -eye conversations much. They yeah. sit next to each other and text each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm totally shocked because I'm very. So great. That's a great question. Yeah. Let's let's get a response. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. No. Question. Well, um, 
this isn't exactly my domain, but I do know a little bit just about some of the research that's that's been happening and what they're... I think one of the sort of risky things in this is that game developers now and technology developers are getting so savvy in terms of understanding how... Um, how the reward circuits work in the human body. And so, you know, anytime like you're playing a game and you win something or you kill the guy or whatever it is, then you get more points and you get a rush out of that, which I think involves the dopamine circuit, which, you know, reinforces behaviors. So every time, every time you get a prize, then you get a hit of dopamine and then that reinforces the desire to continue having that behavior more and more and more. And so it's reinforcing this the interaction with this device because it gives you this like continual sort of this heightened activation thing so that when you don't have that level of activation and stimulus then your system just kind of is like I'm here and I'm supposed to be doing this thing that's really intense and that's giving me dopamine hits and when I don't have it I just keep like my psyche continually is like reaching for this thing because that's what my system is growing accustomed to and they're they're like it's it's being used in really positive ways for like learning software and helping kids that have you know speech difficulties and reading disability like so it's being applied in really useful ways but i think also in really potentially like dangerous ways too um the other thing that i've also been hearing about is that um in the longer term there may be a danger that young people like aren't developing the neural infrastructure that allows them to initiate their own activity. Like it's all based on interacting with this thing. And it's usually it's, you know, your iPad or your iPhone or whatever that's basically guiding you through this thing. And so take the device away and then ask them to initiate and develop and follow through on their own self-generated um, activity is potentially becoming more difficult because their systems are getting so used to just being reactive and responsive that developing this longer-term thing may become more difficult. Um, and then the third thing that I've heard is that the screens, because it's all two-dimensional, that it's actually potentially changing our perception of the world. Mm. And like you were saying, you know, the They've, the graphics now have become so enhanced and it's looking more and more lifelike, but the way that it's stimulating on a sensory level all of our different um, systems is completely different than when you're actually acting, interacting with a biological human or with the biological landscape. And so it's, the, it's, it's um, privileging only a certain bandwidth within our sensory perception and then the rest of it either won't get integrated as much or won't get activated as much which I think then you go out into the world I mean it's the same story that people have been saying about like yeah. violent games and movies for a long time you go out into the world you see someone die and your understanding just purely on the visceral biological of what has happened is completely different because you know because you're not understanding it in terms of, oh, this is me empathetically, neurologically having a, an experience of what this person is experiencing. It's me having this experience that I've had 10,000 times playing this game, you know? So, yeah, so there's lots of... So do you, is there anything that you're seeing that with your ways of understanding all of this, the education or programs or things can work? 
to help balance all of this and make people aware of the need for balance? Or I think you have a whole set of practices that you talk about. Yeah. Um, Maybe you could talk a little about that because it's responsive to this. Sure. That's a good question. Sort of, where do you take this in terms of practice? Sure. Well, um, I think it's just really essential, A, to just basically have basic time outside. Um, so there's kind of, there's the intentional way of going about it, I guess, and then the sort of more just receptive, passive way. So just spending time outside, you know, get the devices out of the kids' hands, send them outdoors, go play, you know, all of the benefits of just play outside. There's a lot of research on that. Um, but to really sort of gear towards this intentional development of some of these um, ideas is make art about, you know, go through a process of tuning into a place. I mean, I guess this is a slightly different question than what you're asking, specifically about young people. Well, anybody. Um, okay. You know, because okay. adults are on this stuff right. all the time, too. Um, I think being really intentional about the percentages of time that we're dedicating to these different interfaces and interactions. And what I tried to outline on the website was like kind of a step-by-step -step process for how someone could start to cultivate this type of place-based art-making practice. So, you know, go to a place, the initial thing is just sort of like taking it in, like I was describing from the process that I learned from the choreographer that I worked with, to sort of take in all of the, the neurosensory feast that's around you and allow it, you know, notice what happens as it's triggering an internal response in you. I like um, Antonio Damasio has a way of describing this as it's your internal symphony that then gets activated in your internal system in relation as a as you start listening to the symphony that's around you, so then the symphony sort of gets activated inside of you. And then if you allow that out into expression through art making, you know, it can be any form really, like vocalization, singing, it can be you have your guitar with you or your flute with you and you play the waterfall <laughs> like you're hiking on. Um, What's the trail in town that's got like the seven waterfalls? Cataract. Steve, cataract, yeah. yeah. You know, play the song of each waterfall as you're going down the trail kind of thing. Um, bring paper with you. I have a dear friend uh, that I've done a couple projects with and she's visual art oriented. And so we brought like crayons and did rock rubbings and things. And it's all about then putting it back out so that you're conscious mind has an opportunity to sort of go, oh, this is the shape and pattern and texture of my experience that I'm having. Um, and I think the reason that, that, for at least the purposes of this project, that the emphasis is on art making is because it's, it's not just about taking it in, but it's about sort of completing that circle. And then when you allow the, the, art, the artifacts that come out of your art making to then join into the environment that you're creating, then you get this you have reference points that are mirroring back to you and amplifying to you your, your, your connection to the landscape. And so it sort of creates this loop that I think, um, and back to your question then about cities, you know, what if we actually created cities in that way? Like sussed out the organization of how a city could be laid out within a particular ecology based on, you know, 
drawing patterns and seeing what the natural organization of that landscape is, that's a city I would want to live in. You're listening to a conversation with Catherine Baumgartner and Michael Lerner. Well, traditional towns and cities uh, were often exquisitely beautiful. And they did emerge from what you're calling embodied ecologies. Um, What's the name of the great guy who was at Berkeley who did uh, pattern language and everything? Yeah, Christopher Alexander is just stunning on this. You know, know, he talks about how in traditional cultures, everybody knew how to build a house. And, And there were certain forms that you know, just a natural part of how the house was built. He was our inspiration. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so it seems to me one way of thinking about it is that um, we used to know how to build cities and that we forgot in some, certain ways. Um, and um, now we're trying to remember again. But I, I do think, just listening to this, that... Um, that's it would be wise in this in thinking this through not to privilege nature above uh, urban environments I mean you know I just think that you know human beings do both uh, and in fact many of us go back and forth yes you wanted to say something? yeah so there's this question of, uh, of the romanticization of, of nature and, right. and then urban areas and and whether one is really distinct from the other or mm-hmm. which one's better I I can't help but think about how, and I definitely have a bias, I've spent a lot of time in various ecosystems, mm-hmm. um, that in an ecosystemic uh, relatable, uh, experience, I'm constantly in relationship with different species and different forms all the time. In urban areas, I find that separation is such a distinct aspect of an urban area. There's mm-hmm. walls everywhere, streets and pools, and the, the amount of interaction between species is really limited to humans. And, you know, maybe a tree or a water feature here and there, but mm-hmm. it's very limited. So I'm curious about the, the neurological pathways that get developed from uh, multiple relationships or a, a, a constellation of relationships all the time in the natural world and the limitation of those and specifically human relationships in an urban world. Like it's got to be a different, I'm, I'm curious if there's uh, been work done on that or, or something that can be referenced in, in terms of those ideas. Great question. You know, we had uh, um, Malcolm Margolin out here, the great student of uh, California Indians. And he wrote a book about California Indians and California Indian culture, native culture. And when you read how those folks actually lived out here, and you ask yourself honestly, how would you rather live? Would you rather live the way Native Americans lived on this landscape? Or would you rather live the way we live today? I mean, I'm all for the beauty of native culture, and I get it, and I get all the forms of wisdom and indigenous, um, but I don't think it's an open and shut case that, um, that I, I think there is something to be said for what has happened with the evolution of culture, and it isn't that one is greater or lesser than the other, but, but I really wonder 
how many of us, because in Bolinas, we get to live in relationship to Berkeley and Oakland and San Francisco. We get to be out here and, you know, some of us get to be out here. Plus, you know, all kinds of things that have come from urban cultures that are here with us. You know, books and music and CDs and all kinds of stuff. So I just, I think it's good to ask honestly about what we have lost, which is very real, and the incredible power and beauty of traditional cultures, but also not to paint too um, dark a picture of what we've created. You know, I think there's something to, to be said for it. Yes? So I'm very curious. I, I, when I hear you speak and, and knowing a little bit about Catherine's work, when I think about our systems, and how our systems are collapsing. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of the need for an evolution of consciousness that matches an evolution of our systems mm -hmm. so that they support life. So I'm wondering if perhaps the conversation is not really about whether city is better than nature, but whether the systems that humans create are uh, supportive of mutually beneficial relationships. Mm -hmm. I think that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And when I, I also lived in New York City for mm -hmm. 10 years, and I think of Grand Central Station and Times Square, like it's like radiating, like a radio station radiating out to the rest of the nation, a lot of waves. And I didn't always feel that what was radiating out was wisdom, And that there was a push, like a wave, where I really had to ground myself in my own truth so to not be swept by the wave. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'm curious about what would a generative conversation sound like where we are taking, where we're asking ourselves, what is the next evolutionary step for us, knowing what we know? Mm -hmm so that both in our cities and in our natural world, we are, you know, fostering a, a mutual a, a duty of care that supports the thriving and well-being of all beings. Catherine, what would you I say to that? That's a great. problem nowadays, especially when I see that our cities are going to be burning up in like 10 or 15 years if yeah, we don't that's a whole other story. change. Catherine, what are your reflections on that? There's so much to say. Um, I think it really does maybe connect up with this notion of wisdom. Um, and a more, just spending more time, because really I think both cities and ecologies or any culture anywhere, regardless of where it arises, has to do with creativity and how we're, participating in this process of creating more diversity in our environments um, and then trying to create structures that help us make sense of that diversity. Um, 
And I think partly what Annabelle is getting to is like our world has changed. And so the structures that have governed our understanding of what the world is about are falling apart. And so we need to create new structures. And I think it's interesting, almost it's like we're coming back full circle to saying, okay, maybe like it has to be some hybrid of a local, you know, bioregional type cultural generation. But then also that has to be paired with a sort of global attunement as it were because we don't just inhabit one place anymore like Oren was saying you know we're so mobile that it's almost like the next challenge for humanity is to understand how to be located in a specific place but having a global impact in every decision that we make and that's that's a pretty massive continuum to try and comprehend and I think you know I think we have to allow either be really intentional about how we're developing a consciousness that can integrate that or else allow us a lot of time to go through the learning process to arrive at that point of understanding. It occurred to me that, you know, you have another really nice chart, Connecting Communities of Practice, in which you have, you know, children and nature, cognitive science, biocultural diversity, human ecology, traditional ecological knowledge, eco-psychology, interpersonal neurobiology, conservation psychology, phenomenology, neuroscience, anthropology, and arts and humanities. And you're talking about the integration of all of these with this embodied ecology perspective. So it occurred to me that a good 75% of those could not exist without the evolution of urban science and civilization. In other words, almost all the tools that you are working with are the product of this enormously bivalent system that we've created, which is both enormously creative and hugely destructive, right? Mm -hmm. And so the tools we're working with, the very language that we're using, uh, are a function largely of an urban, you know... It is true. ...an urban civilization. I would say yes and, because... um Everything that's on that wheel, mm-hmm. at one point back in the day, you know, like the further we go back mm-hmm. in culture, and I'm not a cultural historian mm-hmm. in that sense, mm-hmm. but like, in I know like back in the Greek times, didn't you know the seven mm-hmm. muses or whatever mm-hmm. it was, where all these like mm-hmm. they didn't separate poetry from astronomy, from mm-hmm. philosophy, from whatever, and then you know the further back you go, the less fragmentation and sort of specialization. Mm-hmm. So I think. You know, I think they're like I, maybe it is just all about coming full circle, and and it's interesting within academia. There's this big push towards interdisciplinary studies and integrative studies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's there's a mm-hmm. a perception of the limitation. Like we've gotten so specialized and maybe like reached the apex of what specialization can mm-hmm. give us, and then now we're trying to sort of come back Taking around back and bring it back together. Couple more questions. Yes, I, I'm struck. I'm not sure if it will develop into a question, but, I, but I'm struck by the sense of uh, the circle that you make around how big your world was, and then the encounter of the world in another way, and then the encounter in another way when you started giving back to it, like through creative expression. Like, now there's this relationship and it gets bigger, and these, the conversation that we're also having is, you know, that, that one faction of the world as it is may or may not be better than another faction of the world it is, but we're still not to the grand cosmology of all that is, 
which includes somehow everything, mm -hmm. right? So we're still trying to have these divisive conversations about is this or is that? And I, and, and I think what you give us, or what I got, went just from the base, like from the circle to the circle to this, is that we really can maybe through this way of pulling all this stuff together, we really might get as big as we actually are. <laughs> we really might get the sense of cosmology that is the big bubble around all the bubbles that are making this whole grand conversation possible at all. And that the that the value that you bring like that you that you bring all the big words and the serious study back to like could you bring a pencil with you <laughs> is beautiful like I can as a human I can engage at that I can I can go into my my Grand Central Station and I can have my big wave of what I'm experiencing pushing out across the whole wide world because there's nothing more enormous and beautiful for me. And I can sit in Muir Woods at the base of just the tiniest of redwood trees and have my experience expanded by that communication and reality that gets to enter me differently mm -hmm. and make my world bigger. Mm -hmm. And somehow the world getting big, like the, like I wanted to get, like, my lungs get bigger, my, like inside the body of the body mm -hmm. is the expansion of the, is that yeah. happening? Yeah. <laughs> if I could just rip off of that for a second. If there's anything that's a takeaway from today, it's that this isn't anything new. Like, mm -hmm. what this is all about is just bringing, like, we're, our bodies are already aware of this cosmic symphony that's going on, mm -hmm. and is, we're already processing it on some level just to continually adapt to whatever moment we're in. Mm -hmm. But it's about what happens when, through various intentional practices, we bring more of that perceptual symphony into conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. And then as you start, as that information then becomes available and by just virtue of being a human with a brain, we're going to start to organize it in order to try to make sense of it. Like how much does that enrich the world that you're living in because you're incorporating all of this information in a conscious, intentional way? You know, I think that's, that's, the, like, that's the grand opportunity that really this is all about. So... Well, Catherine Baumgartner, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you. A real pleasure. You've been listening to a conversation with Catherine Baumgartner and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port O'Monkeys please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>